Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of IHC Talk. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado and the University of Colorado on the Anschutz Medical Campus. And I'm joined today by my chromogen siblings, Dr. Sonam Lagavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center and Dr. Andrew Belizzi of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome to the show. Great to see everybody. Great, Great to, to be here. Hooray! Yes. Did you guys have a good summer? It's getting chilly out. Is this summer over? Well, <laughs> I'm just summer, kidding. Summer's over really early. In, in Iowa, yeah, it yeah. depends I'm, where you live. It's all relative, right? Yeah, well, in Houston, I think it's like 95 degrees outside. So I believe it. We have a really wonderful guest today, Dr. Diego Castrione from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Diego, I always, always love to start these talks by getting to know our guests a little bit and telling the medical students and residents in our audience a little bit about pathology careers and you know, what people do. So tell us a little bit about what got you interested in pathology, kind of your career path and what you're doing now. Well, Mike, as you know, I was uh, MSTP at UT Southwestern uh, since we did that together way back when. Um, and, you know, that I, I was always interested in science. Um, and that was always part of the appeal for uh, going into medicine that, you know, I was interested in research. And so naturally pathology quickly emerged as a great specialty to go into because it married, you know, it marries research uh, and practice so well. Um, and it's, I would argue, the most scientific of the, of the medical specialties. We're really close to disease. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to diagnose disease all day long is a real privilege um, and something that I really enjoy doing. Diego, we're, we're, all, we're all really close to disease, but I got all the Zs. I got two Zs in my last name. So I'm, so I'm, so I'm, I've got my finger on the Z's. Right. <laughs> I make stupid jokes. Diego, what do you, what do you do? What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not a, what, when you're not being a translational molecular pathologist? Well, I do a lot of things. One is that, you know, I have a family and they keep me busy. Um, and um, I'm, I'm a little hung up on the 1980s, you know, so I love, uh, new wave music, you know, I have a phenomenal uh, new wave Spotify list, you know, and so Ooh. if anybody wants, wants that, email me, you know, and I'll send you the best and somewhat edgy, you know, list of new wave music, you know, new wave music. I feel like maybe we should share that along with the podcast. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll send you the link and you want to listen to it. Some of these are, you know, not something these some, uh, some of these songs are not for the kids, but, you know, they're on Spotify. <laughs> So, do, you, um, do you have a two or three most iconic uh, bands? That's really that's really hard. I can't I can't choose from the dozens of wonderful bands that are represented right. on. And so to, along those lines, I also love classic video games. You know, I'm talking right. about arcade games from the 1980s. Wow. And uh, you know, I'm pretty good at Defender. You know, if anybody remembers what that is, and uh, I'd be happy to take anyone on. Uh, we are very lucky in Dallas in that we have a lot of uh, retro arcades, mm. uh, including the National Video Game Museum, which is up in Frisco. Mm -hmm. And they have a wonderful collection of uh, classic arcades. And every so now then and the then, next time we're in Dallas, I feel like yeah, every, every now and then, if you want to go off some steam, I, you know, I highly recommend. 
It's uh, it's BYOQ though. Bring your own quarter. <laughs> no, you get you for the price of admission, you get some free tokens. So, wow, nice. Are these interests stuff that you share with your with your family as well? Well, my kids surprisingly have taken a liking to some of these, uh, you know, new wave songs, even though they have very diverse musical tastes. Yeah. Uh, I haven't got them interested in the classic arcade games yet. Yeah. Uh, they're <laughs> interested in in more modern you know, computer games. I'm especially excited to uh, meet a fellow Brighamite. Uh-huh. Um, and I, it's neat that you went to MIT as, as well. How did you end up at Brigham for your, for your, for your training after your, after your, your MD, PhD at UT Southwestern? Right. Well, I had done my undergrad in, in, at, at MIT. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea of going back to Boston always appealed to me. I still had friends at MIT, you know, in Boston from my college days, and I like Boston. So um, I thought it would be a great place to do a residency and that, I, you know, I would really enjoy living, living there. And, uh, you know, both of those things turned out to be, you know, turned to be true. Did Are you, you from know? the Northeast? Uh, no, I was that? born in Puerto Rico. Okay. I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, my parents are from Argentina, and I moved to Texas when I was 10 years old. So I'm really more Texan than anything else. Wow. But, nice. I, but I'm a Texan who does enjoy a little stint in New England from now, you know, now and then. Diego, did you do AP only? Yes, I did AP only. And then uh, who was your trainer, and who did you train, and who were your co-residents? Well, Mel Feeney trained me, who's a yes. you know, well-known... Uh, neuropathologist and basic researcher. And she was very patient with me. You know, she's tough, but she was very patient with me and she was a wonderful trainer. Um, and my, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember who I trained. <laughs> it's, you know, it's verifiable. So there's mentorship in the residency training program at Brigham, but it's really formalized. And, and, and I'm a student of history, which I've mentioned on this podcast, probably every episode, but but it's, it's, it's formalized and it's formalized to the point where if you go to the chief resident's office, you can see the lineage, you can see the family tree of who trained, of who trained who. So it's just, I mean, it's just for fun to see, you know, to see, to see how branches are, are related. How did you develop your interest in GYN pathology during, during your AP training? My PhD was in reproductive genetics. Um, working in Drosophila to identify new mutations that affected, you know, uh, gametogenesis. And so I think that reproduction appeals to me because it's so complicated. You know, you have this interplay of uh, so many different organ systems uh, and cell types. There's the hormonal, you know, component. Um, So I think the complexity really appealed to me. So when I went to the Brigham and they had this fantastic program in women's and perinatal pathology, you know, that being such an important, you know, tradition uh, at the Brigham, I think I was naturally, um, you know, drawn into it. In fact, I did in a way uh, rotation as a fourth year medical student. And rather than do the gen- generic AP rotation, I did it in the women's and perinatal uh, pathology division. So I kind of already knew what I was going to get into uh, even before residency started. I mean, assuming that I would get into the program. Uh, and, and who was who was the show, you know, who, who, who did you train with? Who, who most deeply influenced you? Well, Chris, of course, Chris Crum was um, the person I first remember meeting 
And, uh, you know, he was, he was very kind and generous with his, with, you know, with his time. And I remember just showing up that first day as a fourth year medical student and just joining everybody at the, on the, at the microscope and being part of the team. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, Bill Welch, who just retired, yeah. Ken Lee, who just retired, uh, George Mutter, Marie Sanucci, were all there and, uh, you know, fantastic mentors and, pe- and people that I, that I worked with. Was, was Michelle there yet or was she, was she in the residency maybe a year? Yeah, she was coming, you know, she was coming up. So, um, I, I certainly knew her during my, you know, during my training and, um, I remember her very fondly as well. Andrew, who is Michelle? Yeah. So Michelle is Michelle Hirsch and she, she signs out, uh, on the service, but she, uh, she is, she's the chief of GU pathology at Brigham and women's, uh, and, and when I was there, I was there from 2009 to 2011. So that's where I was a baby junior faculty. And I had so many mentors, uh, uh, but Michelle was definitely one of my mentors and she was a mentor more than just at the microscope, but she was a mentor in, she was a mentor in life. Like she, she, she so, sort of gave me some, uh, direction about how to be a person in pathology <laughs> at the, at the Brigham, like you know, she was a mom. And, and so I learned a little bit about how to be a dad in pathology. I didn't do a very good job at the time and I'm still, and I'm still trying, but, uh, and Michelle and I had, uh, affinity for each other and we called ourselves, she came up with it, but we call ourselves below the belt pathologists. Cause I do GI which <laughs> is mainly below the belt. I mean, we got the esophagus, right. But uh, and she does, she does GYN and GU. So we're, so we're below the belt pathologists in arms. Yeah. And Michelle cool. is unique in that, I think, in combining GYN and GU, because you'd think it would be more common, sure. um, you know, because they're kind of the, you know, the male and female side of things, but sure. it, it's a fairly uncommon combination. Yeah. When, when you were, when you were doing your fellowship, what, uh, I guess was was Chris working on the, you know, the fallopian tube origin of serous carcinoma yet? How far along was that? And, yes. and what what did you focus on when you were when you were a fellow? Uh, so yes, the the work on sticks, you know, uh, serous tubal intraepithelial carcinoma was definitely percolating there yeah. while I was a resident and fellow. And um, I didn't jump in with him on those projects, but I was very interested from the very beginning. There was obviously something very important going on there. And I really view Chris as the leader who opened up that whole field um, and taught us, you know, about uh, sticks and how to how to find them and what what their biological meaning was. So my big project was, uh, you know, the demonstration that P57 was a really valuable marker for a molar pregnancy. There had been some earlier studies looking at p57 in, in gestational trophoblastic disease, but you know maybe because they didn't have very good antibodies, they weren't yep. you know the papers that really sort of moved the field forward and convinced everybody that p57 was going to be that definitional marker. So that was the big project that I participated sure. in as a as a fellow. Did, um, you, were, did you guys publish in? in it was an American Journal of Surgical Pathology paper. Yeah, yeah. Can I guess can you can you tell tell the kids how how we use uh, P fifty seven in in diagnostic pathology and sure. diagnosis so, of pregnancy? Um, yeah, so um, I think it is you know uh, I think one of those situations where 
I think necessity was the mother of invention. Um, there I was, a GYN pathology fellow, struggling with the diagnosis of early moles, right? And so it was this period where uh, ultrasound was becoming commonplace. And so the, the, you know, these moles were being diagnosed earlier and earlier in gestation. And I didn't know how to do it. It was really hard. You know, it was subjective and there were so many histologic criteria. And so there had been work showing that uh, complete moles are diandric, they're parental, right? They're both the, the, that uh, the, the genome is entirely derived from the father. And just operating from, you know, basic principles, knowing a little bit about, about imprinting, I realized that if one could do an immunostain for a gene that was expressed only from the maternal alleles, that that gene would be underexpressed in complete moles. And so I looked in the catalog for a good monoclonal for something that was strongly imprinted and expressed from uh, the maternal allele. I found this monoclonal for P57. It was the first one I tried and it worked fantastically. So I, wow. think, that's still, I, still, I think that's still the clone that we all use. That's uh, a great tool. I love that story. That's, that's amazing. a wonderful tool. That's awesome. And is, I mean, is there anything to P50 to P57 or, or it's, or it's just that it's uh, maternally expressed? Is, yeah, that, it's is that right? I, so of course the entire suite of imprinted genes are going to be misexpressed in moles. Sure. And so I suspect that a lot of genes are making a contribution to the molar phenotype, yeah. but it does seem that P57 is particularly important. So yeah. in, a, in some sense, it's just a marker but it also is probably a major driver of the, mol the molar phenotype. But and I think any, any imprinted gene would, would work. You know, ba so based on your, you know, based on your, your premise, then there would be, I don't know how many genes are, are imprinted in, in that way, but that there would be dozens or even hundreds of targets that could potentially give us the same information. Are you aware of any, investigations around, around alternative diagnostic markers for the, for the, in that diagnostic setting? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, there's probably about 30 or 40 really strongly imprinted genes. And so then of course you have to limit yourself to the ones that are expressed from the maternal genome. Then you have to limit yourself to the ones that have a really good monoclonal antibody. Sure. You have to limit yourself to the ones that are highly expressed in placenta. The first one you tried worked so, so well, how, how did that, how did that happen? Uh, just lucky. Yeah. I have a good, I have a good eye for a good antibody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't like think so. I think it's a well thought out experience, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Or experiment. I think, you know, like, yeah, it was a great approach. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, there was a paper out today in cancer discovery on plastic plasma, our favorite topic, plastic plasma, such as dendritic cell neoplasms and how, um, you know, why there is a, um, there's a male predominance and a gender bias, it's much more common in men. Mm -hmm. And the reason being that there are mutations in ZRSR2, uh, that's also an imprinted gene and it's on X chromosome. So when you have inactivating mutations, you know, men have one copy, so they lose, they lose the function. And um, so, you know, I mean, I think they basically, I think took the same approach, right? Had the, the same thought and took the same approach and just proved it. I do want to mention that another group had the same idea and published uh, something, something earlier. So um, I think it was a good idea. And I think multiple yeah. people were beginning to have the idea about imprinting, you know, and taking advantage of that for a, you know, for a good biomarker uh, assay. 
to help so, us in, 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 in the clinic. So the speaking, of, speaking of things that are impossible on H&E that, uh, that we need some good biomarkers on, but maybe, maybe we should le lead up. I'm, I'm fascinated of, about, this, about this paper that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna discuss, but, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what, how we got here, like what's happened the, the last 15 years, because because then you went you went back to UT Southwestern where you had been right. where you'd been MD PhD and you said you have lab and I guess what's what's you, what do you do like how much time do you spend looking at slides and how much time do you send, spend in lab and do you have wet lab and how big's your lab and 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 what's the what's been the shape of the experiments that you guys have done over time so most of my weeks I spend directing my research lab and uh, we focus exclusively on endometrial cancer. We're one of the few basic research labs that, that focus on endometrial cancer. One of the reasons that we focus on it is that there are so few labs that focus on that. And as we all know, it's really a major cancer that doesn't receive the attention um, that, it, that it deserves. And so my lab just studies fundamental molecular mechanisms driving endometrial carcinogenesis. We do a lot of genetically engineered models to study what tumor suppressors do. Um, and of course, as a practicing pathologist, a practicing GYN pathologist, I'm always interested in moving the diagnostic field forward. And somewhat like the P57 story, you know, for me, it's been a sort of a personal voyage where, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I think some of the hardest cases that I get, you know, on a weekly basis are the uh, things in the endometrial precancer range. Sure. And so I, you know, I feel that as a, you know, as a dedicated GYN pathologist, I'm, you know, I'm, I can handle most things. And of course, there's always challenging cases that you're going to need help, you know, uh, uh, help on from your colleagues or biomarkers or whatever. But I know that if I have a service week, that I'm going to have cases and the difficult endometrial biopsies that I'm not going to know what to do with. Yeah. And that's the motivating force here. Um, I think that we're not yet at 100% accuracy in identifying endometrial precancers. There's obviously been a lot of discussion in the field with different nomenclature, uh, different histologic criteria. And I think all of those developments have been really great for the field. Um, but I've been motivated by the idea that biomarkers could really help us, could really help us out. Um, you know, I think that as, as anatomic pathologists, we all know that morphologies are superpower, right? It's something that we can do very well, but we also, I think, recognize that there are limits to that superpower. So I'm excited about the idea that we take knowledge about basic mechanisms and genetic driver events and convert it into some uh, readily interpretable assay. And so I've been motivated for the, about that for a long time, but it's also very challenging subject because endometrial cancer is complicated, right? And so there isn't going to be a single biomarker like P57 for complete moles or P16 for, um, you know, high-grade squamous lesions. Um, so I always thought that we're going to need a panel, you know, for this. It would have to be well-chosen panel. And then the question would be, how do you pick the components of that panel and how do you use them, uh, you know, together? 
I'd love for our listeners and our audience to learn from the expert. Um, so how, you know, what is the relevance of these lesions? What is the, the relevance of atypical complex uh, endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial uh, neoplasia in situ? And how do you diagnose them without that? You know, what are the current criteria for diagnosing these lesions? Well, I, the interesting, you know, thing about this field is that we've had these um, you know, I want to, I don't want to say competing criteria, but there, there have been these different schemes, you know, for diagnosing endometrial precancers. And I think they're both very influential and really important to keep in mind. Uh, so of course the, the older system, um, which was uh, published in WHO 1994 is the four classification scheme where we assess, sim you know, simple versus complex architecture. And then absence or presence of atypia, which leads to this four category uh, system. And then in the last 20 years, the competition has come in and it's the EIN system, the endometroid intraepithelial neoplasia. And that's been very influential. And I think for many good reasons, it has uh, pointed out some of the challenges of the, um, you know, the four tier system. Um, namely that it's difficult to have criteria to distinguish between simple and complex and atypia, um, you know, itself is a very subjective um, criteria. And so I think EIN has been very useful in that it's tried to create a single threshold, you know, for calling something a precancerous lesion. Um, and I think the concepts have been very influential and I think made us better, better pathologists. And to some extent, these systems have been married um, so now a lot of pathologists are advocating um, not to not classify them according to, you know, to architecture, right? So it's just the presence or absence of, of atypia. So in a sense, the four-tier system might be collapsing back down to an EIN-like system. You know, and that's an example of the EIN system being influential. Um, but that's not necessarily universal, right? So I think pathologists are free to use what system they want. And I believe that many practices are still using the four, you know, the four-tier system. Um, I like the four-tier system because I think it's honest about risk stratification, right? That we're not perfect about uh, understanding the risk based on morphology alone. And it says that we have these four tiers and there's increased risk, you know, of endometrial cancer progression. However, that's difficult to apply in practice because those diagnostic criteria don't relate to clinical actionable, you know, clinically actionable items. And so that is one of the, you know, the things that the system has been criticized for. Um, the EIN draws a very sharp line based on the, you know, the EIN criteria that I won't, you know, repeat, but um, it involves, you know, the extent of gland crowding, you know, glands greater than stroma, uh, cytologic distinctiveness, um, and so forth. But I, it, it is somewhat troubling if you really think about it. The EIN system, according to published studies, which I think are very good, EIN signifies a 45-fold increased risk, right, of endometrial cancer. And that means that, well, we certainly shouldn't be missing those cases, right? That's a very high risk. Um, but doesn't that imply that there's something in the things that we're calling, you know, that don't meet EIN criteria that still have an increased risk of, you know, cancer progression. I want to identify the cases that have a 20-fold risk, uh, you know, and I think that's where the biomarkers and, you know, uh, can help. And that's where I think new criteria and maybe new systems will be needed 
you know, in, 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 in the future. Um, I think this is still a very much a dynamic area that we need to do more work on and, um, you know, have more discussion among, among, uh, amongst colleagues. You know, I'm interested in, you know, I was reading your paper really closely and I, I guess first I should say this guy, this guy is a man after my own heart. He's a translational molecular pathologist that uses next generation immunohistochemistry to make refined diagnoses. We're like brothers by another mother. <laughs> um, I'm so struck by uh, the, you know, the way that you portrayed this, uh, this lesion and this problem and how, how unique endometrial cancer is as a model system to uh, describe or to understand oncogenesis. And the reason that I'm struck is I'm a GI pathologist. And this is Barrett's esoph this is the same as Barrett's esophagus. So you mm -hmm. said, you know, you have this field and that that precancers or even I want to get your thoughts on pre-precancer, that you have precancers developing in these fields, and you have these multiple clones that are sweeping over each other and competing with with each other and, and neoplastic progression occurring in in the setting, and you have the opportunity for serial sampling and you don't typically have extirpation, right? So we have someone with eight centimeters of Barrett's and they do biopsies around. And if it's not cancer or high-grade dysplasia, if it's, especially if it's not dysplastic, they leave it alone and they sur surveil and they serially biopsy. And we, we see, we see evolution of the neoplasm over time. We also have in Barrett's esophagus, we definitely have neoplasia without dysplasia. So um, I'm, that's why I'm, I'm interested in your, your thoughts on pre-pre-cancer because Barrett's esophagus without dysplasia has clonal P16 abnormalities. That's like the earliest identifiable oncogenic uh, event. So I was, I was so struck at the parallels between, between our two fields uh, and so struck and always have been thinking about uh, specifically uh, the PAX2 and the P10. Um, and maybe we, maybe we can get into your selection of the biomarkers uh, around this that, that and they're, wow, these markers are incredibly sensitive for uh, AHEIN, but that they're also lost in single, you know, in single glands in maybe even most, most cases. That was fantastic summary, I think, of the, you know, of the, of the challenges we, we face. And also, you know, these papers are sort of voyages of discovery, right, for, yeah. you know, for us as well. And we have some ideas about what's going to work well, but we don't exactly, we, we don't exactly know. And um, so I was part of two studies that were sort of precursors to this one, which I think is... Um, which I think is an advance in, in, the, in the practical sense. And so one paper that we worked on was sort of an open-ended question. What if we understand the pathways that are really important in endometrial cancer, namely PI3K signaling, of which P10 is uh, the poster child, could we develop some downstream markers that would just reflect pathway activity sure. and sort of capture you know, pathway aberrancy better than P10 alone? Um, and so we looked at a gene called FOXO1, which is downstream of the pathway, and also 
uh, a protein kinase called AKT that is hyperphosphorylated when P P10 is missing. And that was sort of my first step in this area of trying to you know, develop new biomarkers. And the focus there was to see if we could develop new biomarkers. And that paper was published in the International Journal of Gynecologic Pathology. And uh, you know, the, again, I think the personal voyage is really important. It was sort of the first foray for us in this. Um, my, other pathologists in my group were really important, interested in this question. And the interesting, you know, the, the, one of, some of the interesting findings were that FOXA1 and FOSFO-AKT do work in a subset of cases. But I think that they have technical issues that mean that they're not great markers. So in a way, we were reaching for something useful and discovered something interesting, but I don't think those, sure. those things are going to be in the, you know, in, 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 in the ultimate panel. But in, the, in that study, I believe we were the first to formally look at beta-catenin as an EIN or a typical hyperplasia marker. Certainly, there'd been a lot of work. Um, you know, on beta-catenin in endometrial cancer and the fact that it's overexpressed and, you know, uh, undergoes nuclear localization. But um, it was a, it turned out to be a really good marker of, you know, of, of um, you know, of atypical hyperplasia. When and was so, your, when was this, when was this paper? And then when was this paper in, in relation to the TCGA? I'm just trying to get the context yeah, so, for our paper was published in 2018. So we probably yeah. started doing the work around 2017, well after we knew all of the TCGA data and understood, you know, that the PI3K pathway and beta-catenin were really important. Yeah. So that's a great question, Andrew. We very much looked at the TCGA, you know, uh, data to yeah. ask what pathways we should be. We should I mean, be it's, 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 it's fascinating. Every time one of these gets, you know, one of these organ system cancers get solved. It's every time it's, oh, oh, PIK, PI, whatever, 3K, AKT path. That's important. Beta catenin. It's this, it's the same players every, every time. So, so I guess why, why did it take until 20? Cause people have been doing beta catenin immunohistochemistry for, for, for whatever, for desmoid fibromatosis or solid pseudopapillary tumor or whatever your, your, your diagnostic application is for for 20 years or 25 years, what, why did it take so long to come to the endometrium? That's a great question. And it's yeah. difficult to answer, you know, precisely, but I, I think there's always a new angle, right? Yeah. And so we should always be looking, you know, for that, for that angle. And part of it is also that naturally there's always going to be some resistance to change, right? Sure. And I, I experienced that myself. I mean, I, I, I think that I've heard about PAX2 and P10 as, as atypical hyperplasia markers for a long, long time yeah. before I started saying, hey, wait a minute, Let's you look. know, why aren't we using these yeah. routinely as biomarkers? So yeah. I have to admit that even I myself, even though I was interested in the basic research coming out of George Motter's lab uh, yeah. and others, it might have been a few years before I came around uh, I don't want to say to believing the data, but then coming around that it could actually be clinically useful. That's a big step for us. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, one, one thing that resonates with me, and you were talking about the phospho AKT, which any phospho specific antibody is, you know, only for mice. Uh, but that some of these, some of these assays are hard, like P10 immunohistochemistry is incredibly problematic. You know, the, I see the, the, the clone that you used in your paper is the, you know, it's the best clone, but it has to be very carefully optimized. 
And so some of this, some of this stuff takes a long time to come around because you have to be really, really patient to, to get it right, to make it actually diagnostic. There's one thing to publish a paper, but there's another to make a clinical grade assay, which you, clear, like, which you clearly have done and demonstrated that you can use in, in daily practice. That is another um, sort of thread to think about. The monoclonals keep getting better and better because there's natural selection. Different companies make different monoclonals, people try them, and the best ones keep rising to the top. Yeah. And so over years, they keep getting better and better. Uh, and that's a very interesting point that you make about P10, Andrew. I sort of get that a lot, you know, suspicion about the ability to do reliable P10 immunohistochemistry. Now, I was very lucky in, um, you know, uh, working with Dr. Elena Lucas, who's the director of anatomic pathology and had really refined the P10 uh, immunostain at Parkland. Um, but I, and so I don't know all that went into that uh, optimization. Um, but I guess I'd want to reassure the community that you can do very good P10 immunohistochemistry. Yeah. You know, the, the clones are good and it can be done. Yeah. Just like any biomarker, it won't help you in every case. I think that P10 is shut down by high dose progestins. And so the expression is lower and it can be hard in some cases but that's okay. It's still very useful in most cases. So is it, is it, it's Elena Lucas, because we got to give a, we got to give the shout out to your IHC, you know, yes. your IHC whisperer, your IHC yes. guru. Yes. Every, everybody, you know, it takes a, it takes a village, right? And the clone, the clone is the uh, 6H2.1. It's the DACO, it's the DACO clone. It's, I'll, know, I'll take your word for it. Yep. I, that's how lucky I am. I haven't really optimized, you know, P10. I just took what the Parkland IHC lab did That's awesome. and ran with it. Because you said 20, minute, 20 minutes ago, and this was like in relation to, to you finding that monoclonal for P57, that, right. you can, that you can sniff out a, you can sniff out the right clone. I guess but, so. I guess that's the trick. You know, but you know what you did? You sniffed out, you sniffed, sniffed out the right laboratory director and and there's no there's no substitute for for a, a, you know a dedicated devoted uh, IHC lab director. Everybody listening on the to the podcast should aspire to be an Elena Lucas, so that Diego. May Castrion I just say that Dr. Belizzi is an IHC lab director. So <laughs> not that he's any has any kind of bias here. No, but um, you're right. I mean, hey, 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 he, I'm no Joe Curry, so you know I'm just no, just, you, <laughs> you are just as great. But honestly, I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, like we could not practice without our IHC lab directors. So um, you, you deserve all the praise that you get. Um, so can I, can I just ask a couple of questions and back up for, for the trainees? I think, you know, for especially the residents and the, the medical students that listen to our podcast, can we review the, um, you know, basically the utility of these things in the setting? And you know, like something like P10 is normally expressed. And, you know, in the setting of this disease, you get loss of expression. Beta-catenin has aberrant nuclear localization. So can we talk about the panel and, you know, how you utilize them in, in the setting of uh, this diagnosis? Right. And so I think that one of the, the strengths of the American Journal of Surgical Pathology paper that we're talking about, and admittedly, it has many weaknesses, but one of the strengths is that we did all of the markers on a large panel of normal endometrium. And that's always critical to understand the performance and limitations of, uh, you know, of, of the markers. 
And one of the surprise, very surprising twists in all of this is that in most endometria, or a very high percentage of endometria, you will find these scattered glands that are completely null for P10 or PAX2. Um, and that's, you know, perhaps somewhat disconcerting. So George Mutter was the first to describe these uh, P10 deficient glands. Um, one thing I'll stress is that they're night and day. So with good immunostaining, you can see beautiful expression in all the glands, but here's the single gland that has no P10 expression whatsoever. Uh, George has called these latent precancers. It's entirely possible that the P10 deficient cancers arise from these uh, scattered glands. But the fascinating thing is that they're very common in women. So they don't represent any kind of rate limiting step, you know, in, in early neoplasia. So again, you might've thought, well, because I have these scattered glands in normal endometrium, I'm not gonna be able to, to do P10 immunohistochemistry. Um, but what we found and others you know, have found the same is that the patterns are entirely different in normal versus uh, neoplastic uh, endometrium. In normal, it's just a scattered gland here and there that you could, you, that you could ignore. Whereas in, um, you know, in, in neoplasia, it, you know, it takes up a much greater percentage of the field um, and the lesion itself. Um, so now I'm going to push a little, push a little bit. And this is what I wanted to, this is why, what, what I wanted to discuss is these scattered single glands that are, that are deficient for PAX2 or, or P10. And this is what I meant when I said pre-pre-cancer. Uh, like what, like, what do you think? Are, are these, are these scattered single glands, are these pre-pre-cancers or are these scattered single glands that demonstrate the PAX2 and, and. P10 deficiency, are these, are they neoplastic? Are they dead end? Are they dead end neoplastic? Neopla neoplasms are, are the PAX2 and the P10, are they really oncogenic drivers? Uh, or, or are they just, they just markers of a field that's at, at risk? Yeah, Andrew, those are, those are fascinating questions. And I would point out that this phenomenon is quite unusual right? I don't think we find null, null clones in other tissues for other tumor suppressors yeah. um, with the kind of frequency that we see P10 in the endometrium. So I there mean, is I something guess, very interesting it, going on here. It's, is it, would you say it's akin to the P53 signature that, that, pre, you know, that precedes yeah. a stick or you know, how similar or different? Um, other well, than, different, other than it's not a large field. That, it's just, yeah, they're, they're different in that you don't find P53 mutant clones in normal tissues very often. Sure. Certainly not so in- So can I ask you a question? And sure. this, is, this is very naive from someone who hasn't looked at any GY and anything for years. <laughs> um, so, so P10 is normally expressed in, in every cell, right? It's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. What if, you, what if you looked at another organ that you know, is rarely um, affected by, you know, by the PI3K P10 pathway in terms of its carcinogenesis. Would, like if you did a hundred, you know, P10s on let's say skin or something, would you see, you know, little glands or scattered cells that show loss of P10? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I suspect not. And I suspect what is happening is that P10 is such an important driver right, of, and, and it has such an important role in controlling endometrial cell growth, that we are seeing selection 
for these P10 null clones and that it is biologically significant. I think there's a reason yeah. that these P10 clones occur in, in endometrium. But what I do think that it, it's telling us that it's not a major, you it's know, not it's not enough. Yeah. Uh, it only, yeah, it only, it, those P10 null cells will only colonize a single gland, right? Yeah. But it won't grow beyond the confines of that one gland. Yeah. But maybe it's, you know, using, again, my hematopathology analogy, maybe it's just, you know, um, providing fertile grounds for a second hit. Oh, yeah. Right? Kind of like a clonal hematopoiesis so. yeah. uh, concept that, that we have. So if you yeah. have that one gland and you get that additional hit to that gland with, you know, with loss of P10, uh, then you get, you know, lightning. Well, yeah. good for you guys. You know, I'm going to be thinking about my endometrium for a very long time now. <laughs> like this, this is going to haunt me for a very long time. You know, we have loads of uh, Rob Odds, my my former you know partner, my colleague at Brigham. He 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 coined this phrase dysplasia or, or neoplasia without dysplasia, and we have loads of surrogate or analogies to this Pax2 P10 loss in the GI tract. I mentioned these clonal P16 abnormalities in Barrett's without dysplasia being, you know, predisposed, necessary, but certainly not sufficient. And then in the colon, there's BRAF, well, there's BRAF mutations in everything, right? But there are BRAF mutations in hyperplastic polyps, but, but, and there are BRAF mutations in sesocerated polyps and in, and in, and in MSI high colon cancers. And it's that first thing, like in BRAF specifically, it's anti, it's anti-apoptotic, so it's it makes fertile soil for for uh, for a burgeoning neoplasm to not just get de deleted, sloughed off, and and be gone forever. And this is a really important field, um, you know, the interplay of aging, age-acquired mutations, and neoplasia. Um, you know, with Chip being a poster child for that, but now more studies looking at esophagus, you know, and endometrium and showing that there are clone, mutant clones that accumulate and compete yeah. with one another and more or less find an equilibrium. You know, even though you're a P10 mutant, sure. you're still in equilibrium with your neighbors and probably additional hits are what um, make you a bad neighbor. Diego, in, in contrast to P10, where you can have these patches of abnormal cells that don't mean anything, beta-catenin is quite the opposite, where right. it doesn't take hardly any beta-catenin to call it positive, and that's not just true of you know the endometrial in situ neoplasia, but it's also true in fibromatosis. You know, it doesn't take a large percentage to call it positive in medulloblastoma. It doesn't take a large percentage to call it positive. One so, nucleus. Yeah, talk talk a little bit about why that is and and what you know how that how that has implications in in your paper. Well, that was uh, a really great point, Mike, and, and, and that is what's interesting about beta-catenin, that it doesn't appear to mutate in otherwise normal um, you know, endometrium. Um, and so you don't get false positives in normal endometrium. Maybe it's a slightly later event that comes after P10 mutations you know, or, or, or something along those lines. You know, use it, using the biomarkers always requires a very nuanced approach. It's, you know, it takes you further than morphology, but judicious use of any biomarker is a lot like morphology in that you have to know how that marker works. And um, one of the things that we tried to do in this study was 
uh, understand the expression in normal endometrium, and develop criteria that reliably identified the mutant pattern of, you know, of beta-catenin. And I think one of the fine nuances is that you can see a little bit of nuclear expression, you know, in some endometria, but it's not less, it's not more than the membrane staining in those cells. So if you use that as a criterion, nuclear stronger than membrane, it winds up being a really reliable criterion, easy to score. And yes, I don't think it has to be present in much of the lesion to be callable. It's very specific. One thing that I, I'd note is that, I mean, for any immunohistochemical assay, but particularly for beta-catenin, that, that for beta-catenin, there is incredible uh, inter-assay variability in, in signal. Um, and so, like, of all the markers, this is one that would have to be very carefully validated for this diagnostic application. You use the uh, beta-catenin-1 clone, which is which is the DACO clone, uh, again, which is widely utilized. You, you, uh, you, you use a linker step in your, in your immunohistochemistry, which is a signal amplification step. And so your, your beta-catenin staining is going to be stronger than, I use the same clone um, mm -hmm. on the same auto stainers, but I don't use the linker. So I might not find the, find the, the same one. One thing I kind of want to read on and, and, I, and I have like a su suggestion, I don't know, uh, is I think Mike was suggesting that there's something special about beta-catenin, like how come it's only three or six nuclei that are strongly positive in our lesion that's mutant uh, and not every nucleus that's strongly positive, like for, for P53, do you have, do you have insight why, why, the, why we don't see across a field that's beta-catenin mutant, why we don't see diffuse strong nuclear accumulation in endometrial cancer, whereas we do in some, in some tumor types. So in solid pseudopapillary tumor, the lesions are uniformly positive for beta-catenin. Uh, great question. I've wondered, I don't know. One might speculate that it's cell cycle dependent. Uh, one might speculate that it's niche dependent. So maybe there are cells that are seeing a little bit more wind signaling or something, um, but that's all kind of hand-waving and I don't know. But yeah. the characteristic pattern in endometrium is the scattered nuclei across, gl across glands and that makes it easy to score. Um, yeah. But you also see the strong cytoplasmic overexpression, which, go which goes together. It, it's like, it's fascinating. So there are, there are lesions that are beta-catenin mutant uh, that never show nuclear accumulation. So just funic gland polyps in the GI, in the GI tract in the, in the stomach, they always have beta-catenin mutations and they never, sh they always show membranous uh, beta-catenin. So we know that it's, it, it, it is niche, niche dependent or context dependent or cell, like you suggested, cell cycle uh, dependent in the, in the liver. Uh, we have beta-catenin activation in HCC, but also in a subtype of adenomas. But in the, in the liver, we decided, GI pathology decided, liver pathology decided that the beta-catenin nuclear accumulation was a bad readout for, for beta-catenin activation because for whatever reason, despite the mutation, we're looking for limited nuclear accumulation. Mm -hmm. So, and this in multiple organ systems, Wnt pathway activation is observed, and in multiple organ systems, 
alternative diagnostic markers have been proposed as surrogates for Wnt activation. And this is similar to the idea that you had with the phospho AKT. And some of them are like we use LEF1 uh, as a surrogate for beta-catenin activation. It's, it's also a diagnostic marker for CLL, heme path, what, what. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you thought about left one, like left one, try left one in your atypical. I, you know, I, I, haven't, it with beta I haven't, but I hear you. Let's talk and let's collaborate and let's try and let's try them. I mean, yeah. we have, we have extra slides. Um, you can nominate some markers that, you know, maybe sure. we could take a look at. And even though, like you say, I think that beta catenin works quite well, you know, we should always be open to the idea that there's a better, you know, marker. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it is interesting how there's so many constraints in the biology and, you know, why does beta catenin work in endometrium? Maybe part of the reason is that it's such a mutational hotspot, yeah. right? And, you know, obviously in the gastrointestinal tract, APC inactivation sure. is another way to do molecularly the same thing, yes. you know, stabilize beta catenin. But for whatever reason, APC mutations are virtually non-existent in endometrium. Um, so those kinds of constraints play into, you know, what works well and what, you know, and what doesn't, you know, even if, even if we don't fully understand it. So are the beta catenin mutations, are they hotspot mutations or are they all over the place in the gene? A lot of them are hotspots because, uh, exon three is a very common target for beta catenin mutations. There is a, um, there is a domain in exon three, a series of amino acids that targets beta catenin for degradation. And um, when you knock out that site, then beta catenin is stabilized. So um, there's a number of mutations that affect exon three that basically do the same thing. And those are very, very common in, endome in endometrium. Okay. But they're not, ex they're not exclusive. And so Andrew, when you say that some, some cases have variability in the, you know, in their nuclear localization of a mutant uh, beta catenin, does that have to do with the type of mutation or the site of mutation or not? No, it's, 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 no. it's you know, it can, the tumor can have the same, the same beta catenin mutation and mm -hmm. be loaded with nuclear beta catenin or show one or two nuclei po positive. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it seems to be tumor type dependent rather, you know, it's like all the solid pseudopapillary tumors are strongly positive. I bet Mike, what are, when hepatoblastomas are positive, I bet they're, I bet they're diffusely strongly positive. It's not, it's not a few nuclei here and there, right? Yeah, it's not subtle, but it's, yeah. it's not everything. Yep. And the same with HCC, when they're positive, they tend to be strongly positive, but for whatever reason, this beta catenin activated adenoma is just a few nuclei here and here and there. And these endometrial cancers are maybe in between. One thing that I'll mention about beta catenin is because it is strongly expressed in all cells in the endometrium, normally, you know, it's, there's very high expression in the membrane. Yeah. It does require a fairly careful examination, yeah. you know, whereas P10 or PAX2, you know, a pathologist sure. can scan that slide in a hundredth of a second. The beta catenin does require a little bit of looking at higher magnification to make sure that there isn't any nuclear localization. Um, so I think that's one angle that maybe could be improved upon if there was something that was even more easily scored. Don't be a counting pathologist and don't be a high power pathologist. So maybe we can get away with, maybe we can get away with, uh, or maybe, maybe one of these went surrogates would be, would be yeah. easier for the workaday pathologist to evaluate. 
it's worth I'm a shot. I'm not sure I can endorse that last statement, the high power pathologist. <laughs> <laughs> not for someone who looks at bone marrow. The, the only one on this call who probably uses oil at their microscope. Yeah. The only thing I That's use oil fair. for is cooking. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, only, the only oil in my, my life is olives. <laughs> I, th I think the reproducibility of scoring of something like this is always very important. Have you done any work or are you thinking about doing any work with computer analysis of, of these images to see if you can get, um, you know, image analysis to reproducibly score these for you? Uh, you know, that's a really interesting question, Mike. I mean, I think, you know, we might ask how, what are, what are, what are ways in which this field is going to advance and we're going to do a better job of um, you know, diagnosing these precancers. Incidentally, we didn't talk about that very much, but um, I do strongly feel that we're not doing a complete job on that, that there are lesions that are sub-EIN or atypical hyperplasia that are biologically significant. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's kind of this space that we need to do a better, better job on. But anyway- Sounds like you kind of found one in your paper, right? You had a, yeah, well, one in your controls yes. that was- what, yes. Was it? If you recall that? That was case? an example of something that was originally in the control set. It was signed yeah. out as proliferative endometrium, but with the markers, um, it was obviously aberrant in this focus. And it was, it's an example of the markers leading to a diagnosis that wasn't made. And it was sure. just an incidental, um, you know, case in our set. But everybody agreed that that was yeah. an atypical hyperplasia once it was flagged by, by beta catenin, uh, no yes. less. So that was, I think, a nice, nice illustration of how the, mar how the marker panel is useful in practice. I think it makes you a better pathologist. It yeah. can help you confirm very small things. It can help you track things over time. It validates your opinions, um, you know, and, and so forth. Yeah, so I guess that we have two kind of related questions. Yeah. Could you do image analysis just on H&Es to, to, to help you sure. diagnose these things? You know, undoubtedly, that's a very interesting yeah. area. And then could you do image analysis of the H&Es and or biomarkers to make you, uh, you know, better together? Um, those are interesting questions. Um, I think it's certainly worth, you know, worth looking at it. I kind of believe that, you know, we need the nuanced, you know, pathologist interpretation. There's so many subjective things when we, you know, evaluate these biopsies that are difficult to capture in an algorithm. You know, the, how, how, how much sampling there was, what stage of the cycle we're in. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons we did not advocate for strict cutoffs in the paper. Sure. It, it, in the end of the day, the pathologist is gonna have to use their, ju their judgment. You know, is that something that can be reduced, you know, by an algorithm? Perhaps, um, but it's gonna, it's gonna be difficult because, you know, what we see is so variable. You know, we, we live in a non-ideal world, uh, you know, as, um, as pathologists. But certainly if you're looking at a, at a lesion where the aberrancy, say for PAX2 or P10 is less than 5%, you need to be very careful about calling that an, e, an EIN or using that marker as a rationale for calling it uh, an, an EIN. So can you know, I ask you another question? Uh, for the, the cases that were morphologically very difficult to classify, um, you know, I, were the stains also as difficult to interpret in those cases? Uh, wonderful question. I'm glad that you asked that. I think that you can sort of view that as strengths versus weaknesses of the paper. I think we have to start somewhere. 
Right. And so this paper was intended to look at definitive atypical hyperplasias. Because right. if we had brought in difficult cases yeah. that nobody agreed upon, you got to start somewhere. There. You know, it'd be a yeah, mess. Yeah, absolutely. But in your experience, do you find yeah. that, you know, in, in cases where you're kind of on the fence, you're not sure whether to call it or not? Yeah. Um, like how often do you rely on the stains to be able to, to make that yeah. definitive diagnosis? Wonderful question. So we rely on it uh, quite a bit in our group. You know, our group is comfortable using this biomarker panel. We think it's quite useful. And so we use it, but you know, I don't think it's broadly used yet. And I hope that it is. I, I mean, I certainly think that PAX2 and P10 are used, but I think that this panel is, you know, is yeah. a very good combination. Do you apply this to every endometrial biopsy? What, you know, what are the, what are the criterion, even if they're pathologist dependent? And then how often does the result of the biomarker panel validate your gut impression in a hard case? And, and how often are you surprised? I think in the, in the last couple, you know, two or three yeah. years, we started doing more of these immunostains. While you were doing the paper. Um, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, these cases. It should be fairly obvious that the next paper that we're doing is looking at difficult cases. Sure. And so we have this whole spectrum of lesions from this from disordered proliferative endometrium to simple hyperplasias of whatever type. Um, and what's going on in that spectrum with respect to the panel, I think is going to be a really interesting question. Yeah. I strongly suspect that the panel will detect aberrancy in some of those cases and perhaps with an increasing percentage, you know, according to our conception, you know, of neoplastic progression, you know, in, in these lesions. You know, I have to say, I was reading, um, when I read the introduction, I just loved how you had phrased the introduction because reading that again, as someone who's not looked at endometrial biopsies for a very long time, I was reading, you know, you had like number, like number one, because they're fragmented and because they're yeah. awful to look at number two, because, and I was, you know, imagining these scenarios in my mind. And I was like, yes, I can see that. That's totally right. That would be a problem. And I just, I, I loved how, you know, you kind of presented the problem in a very practical manner, like right to the point and then got to it. So, you know, congratulations. That is music that. to my ears. If somebody <laughs> loves a pathology paper, that, you know, that is a wonderful thing. I love so that. Thank uh, you. Should we, should we shout out, is it uh, uh, Mitzi Aguilar? I agree that the statement of the problem was, 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 was very compelling. And I love, I love a good, I love a good introduction. Big shout work. out to the entire GYN pathology team. There are eight of us uh, and we were, everybody contributed to this paper and is a co-author. Mitzi Aguilar is a full-time a scientist in my lab. Uh, she has a bachelor's degree from UT Austin, and she's incredibly well organized. And that was really important in this study and others that she's done. So as you say, Andrew, very much a team effort. And, um, you know, uh, it was it was fun to work on this with people in my lab and the pathology team, uh, and also the new, the, you know, the cases that we're, that we're working on now. I have one final question, I guess. If, uh... So are the clinicians now asking you to do this routinely on all the cases? Like, are you getting calls for do the pack? The, the pack I wish, the I wish. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish. 
Now, so you kind of raise an interesting question of, you know, of acceptance. Will, will there be interested in this panel? Will there be some adoption of this panel? Is it really useful? There's obviously no consensus on that yet. This is really the first paper that describes this three marker panel. I hope so. I believe that it genuinely is useful and that I hope that people will start using it. And that's what's required for it to take hold. There has to be right. acceptance that it is that it helps people and people have to like it and people have to, you know, people have to use it. The clinicians don't really know about it yet, other than they see our reports and they see sure. PAX2 and beta catenin. Um, so, you know, in my own community, we haven't been as communicative as usual, right? Because of the pandemic. But I am doing uh, the OBGYN department's grand rounds uh, in the spring. And so I will have a captive audience then. And so That's I will great. definitely tell them about the, the biomarker panel and what they're seeing on their reports uh, and why. And so, you know, this kind of outreach is really important and it's how things progress. Uh, simply writing the paper isn't enough. You have to pitch it a little bit and hopefully not yeah. too hard if it works and people will, you know, um, you know, will, will accept it over time. Just like P57, you know, was uh, fairly quickly appreciated um, yeah. and, and, and adopted. You know, I, I, I really loved your paper. And I think my favorite papers and my favorite projects are not like the super fancy ones, but are the ones that actually like solve a practical problem for, you know, for us. And to me, like those are, you know, the projects that just like start by, you know, having a difficult case at the microscope and you're like, how can I make my life easier? You know, what is, what is something I can do to make everybody's life a little bit easier? And I feel like this was, you know, this was one of them. It was just like such, such a nice paper addressing such a common issue. That, that like makes everybody's life miserable. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. I would also credit the editor and the reviewers for giving you the, yes. the space. Yes. You know, it's not short. Uh, and to, to let you explicate, it's very edifying. I mean, it's written, it's written like you're at the microscope describing to beautiful. the pathologist across the microscope. How, you know, like, oh, this is this, is this stain. This is why it's important. This is how you event. This is how you evaluate it. This is what it looks like in the lesions. This is what it looks like in, these are the potential pitfalls in interpretation. And, well, and oftentimes you don't have that, you know, the, they want your paper to be three pages long so that they can put a bunch of papers in the journal and they all can get cited a gajillion times. So bravo, yes, bravo. Well, I'm lucky to be part of this wonderful team of GYN pathologists that were very devoted to this question and were very interested. And you know, everybody contributed to this paper. And also, you're right. Um, the editors and reviewers at American Journal of Surgical Pathology were really helpful in making this a better paper. Yeah. Um, I think we might have gone off into too many tangents in some early drafts, and they told okay. us to take some stuff out. And undoubtedly, the paper is much improved because of their uh, suggestions. So My you always want to listen to your renewed. critics. <laughs> Well, it's happened again. You've squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC Talk. Thank you Diego, so much, Diego. Nice to meet you. What a, what a pleasure to meet you. I, I hope we get to meet in real life. We'll catch uh, up, we'll catch up someday. Some, at some yes. Point. Don't stain like my brothers. Don't stain like my sister. Don't stain like my sibling.
Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.